I need? Do I need? Do I need? A wire? A wire? In my heart. In my heart. In my heart. Do I really need a wire in my heart? A Boston Scientific Podcast. Hey, Will. Thanks again for doing this with us. So how did you establish the name Dr. Glockenflecken? So the Glockenflecken thing, that's what's great is that people actually think that my name is Dr. Glockenflecken. It just delights me to know it. I love it. But it's actually a word in ophthalmology. And so I was at a really boring research conference back in 2016. And I was like, look, I, I got to do something to, to keep me entertained during this thing. And I had a friend of mine who was on Twitter and so was like, all right, I'll check it out. I need a funny name because I knew I was going to be telling jokes and stuff. And so I was like, what is the most ridiculous word in ophthalmology? And obviously the choice is glockenflecken. Like, like what else is there? It was either that or Dr. Pseudophacodonesis. And that, um, that didn't roll off the tongue quite like glockenflecken. And what does glockenflecken really mean? It's a word in, um, uh, that we use in glaucoma for people that have something called angle closure glaucoma, where that pressure inside the eye gets really high. It actually kills off little little cells in your lens and you get these clumps that form called glockenflecken. Super fascinating. I can't believe we're already coming up on a year since I had a cardiac arrest. It's wild. The voice you just heard is Dr. Will Flannery, ophthalmologist, TikTok, and Twitter sensation better known as Dr. Glockenflecken. Besides being an entertaining and charismatic social media star, cancer survivor, not once, but twice, as well as a knowledgeable ophthalmologist, Will had the misfortune of experiencing a sudden cardiac arrest this past year. In the final chapter titled The Patient, we'll be chatting with Dr. Flannery, I mean Glockenflecken, about his experiences as someone who survived a cardiac arrest and his current life with an SICD. We hope you enjoy the conclusion of the Boston Scientific Podcast. Do I really need a wire in my heart? Well, I am trying to wrap my head around the idea of having a sudden cardiac arrest. I have many questions, but the most important, I think, is what do you recall of the event? Yeah, uh, honestly, I don't remember a lot. I remember going to my in-law's house and filling up water balloons and throwing them at each other. That's like really the extent of what I remember. I don't remember what we ate. I don't remember going anywhere else. It's weird that that's the one thing that kind of sticks in my memory. And then I've seen pictures because my wife took pictures that day. That's pretty much it. It's really just a kind of a snapshot. And that was like close to the 24 hours before the event happened that kind of mostly blocked out. Around what time did your wife notice that something was wrong? 4.30 in the morning was when my wife woke up and she heard me kind of gasping for breath. She heard me breathing funny. And she thought initially that it was a respiratory thing. Like it was her thought because like I was kind of raspy breathing. And uh, what she was hearing, though, were agonal breaths. So they were not purposeful breaths. It's a very telltale sign of cardiac arrest. I got to listen to the 911 call. It sounds terrifying. But what your wife did was pretty incredible. Can you kind of walk us through the steps that were probably told to you after the event? Honestly, it's an, it's incredible what she did. Not only did she do the 
10 consecutive minutes of chest compressions. But like while she was doing that, she gave the dispatcher like the code to our garage door, described where in the house the kids were sleeping, what cardinal direction. She's like, we're in the north side of the house. Like what? who does this? Like who's able to think like that clearly? Okay, so the medics arrive, and then what happens? The first medic that came into the bedroom said that her feet were like flying off the bed. She was working so hard to do these compressions, and uh, so they took over for her. And you hear that part on the on the call actually, like when they come in and the call stops. They took me downstairs and laid me down on the floor, shocked me six times. Gave me some epi, so they started an IV. They intubated me. They, by the way, they did all this while wearing PPE because of the pandemic. So, like, they had face shields that were fogging up, and they were like having to to switch out to who had the best view. It's remarkable they were able to do everything they did to get a heartbeat back. But they did eventually get a, a sinus rhythm and put me in the ambulance and sent me on my way. So wait a minute, this guy has a cardiac arrest after his wife notices his breathing's irregular. Mm-hmm. She then calls 911. Yep. She starts CPR. Yep. She does around 10 minutes of consecutive CPR before medics arrive. Yes. But then still has the wherewithal to tell the paramedics they're located in the north portion of the house. Yeah. Like, who does that? I know. It's like he said, he, he actually said it. Who does that? don't forget about the garage code. She remembered to actually tell the paramedics the code to the house. So the medics arrive. They shock him six times, place an IV, intubate him, give him a little epinephrine, get a heartbeat back, and while wearing PPE in the process, because it's COVID, people, then what happens? So they expedite him to the nearest receiving hospital. Well, you know, I'm just going to let Will tell you the rest because it's pretty impressive. As soon as I got there, they pretty much took me right away up to the ICU. So I ended, I got there pretty quickly. Then they um, did like the selective cooling thing where they just cooled down my brain. So it's not like ECMO, not like full body cooling, but it was, uh, I think, just my brain. I'm not sure how they did it. I'd be, I'd love to see that, <laughs> what, they, what that's like. I was like that for 24 hours. And then they woke me back up to see what kind of function I had because we didn't have any idea. We knew that my scans looked great. My testing all looked normal. I had my potassium was a little bit low, but everything else looked totally fine. And we just waited. And and the first things I remember waking up, and again, this is probably about just a couple days after the event when I woke up, I remember my nurse asking me questions. I had a, a fantastic ICU nurse and he just was continuously just trying to get me to talk and remember and, you know, talk to him about my life and everything. So I remember that. And then I remember having to FaceTime my wife, Kristen, uh, because she couldn't be in the hospital with me. And thinking back on it, a big thing that I talk about a lot is, and that Kristen talks about a lot is, is how hard this is on the family. Because I, I went to bed, I woke up in the ICU two days later. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I, all I knew is that I wasn't wearing any underwear. I didn't know what, what was happening. She lived that trauma. She went through that by herself with just the dispatcher to help her. Patients like me, they come into the hospital having had this this horrible trauma happen. 
and the doctors are supposed to take care of the patient, but very often they forget that the a lot of times these things are harder on family than it is on the patient. You know, whenever I talk about this, I always try to encourage doctors, don't forget there are other people whose lives have been changed by this horrible thing that's happened, sometimes even more than the patient himself. So you're you're discharged from the hospital and you start the process of recovery. What has the past year been like for you and your family? The first six months were the hardest, I'd say, because it was just this constant every day thinking about, okay, am I going to, is this going to happen again? When is it going to happen again? Am I going to wake up tomorrow? What was the last thing I told my kids? What was the last thing I did with my kids? Uh, Also, it's just like this constant mental just anxiety you're going through. It's gotten better for me. It's still really hard for Kristen. There's always these reminders. We're getting the kids screened to make sure they don't have any heart issues. And I had genetic testing that came back and I you know, I have this this mutation in a gene and we're not really sure like what the significance of it is because no one else has this mutation. So like trying to determine if it's real, we're talking to geneticists. And uh, so it's like every time I have a, an appointment or something, it's just this constant reminder of how this has affected our life. And, and it's, you know, our lives are never going to be the same. It's, 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 it's always going to be this new reality we're living in, but I'd say we're getting, we're getting better. The kids are doing fine. You know, they, they don't, they don't know. They don't understand the, the real significance of what almost happened, what life could have been like, if not for their mother. In my mind, I think, okay, my heart is structurally normal. I have an ICD that's going to protect me. And that's really all I can do. Get, continue to get regular echoes, making sure, you know, my heart's not changing in some deleterious way and move on with life. Will, you have this cardiac arrest, you manage to survive, you spend some time in the hospital, then you're being discharged and they, they hand you this life vest, which we hear is, is quite comical. The million dollar question is, how long did it take you to receive your ICD? Well, initially, I got this cool thing called a life vest. That's what I was discharged with. And if you guys have seen one of these, it's, it's, it's an electric bra. That's what it is. So I, I'm in the hospital. I get this box. I open the box. The first thing I see is like this 85-year-old man wearing this electric bra. And I'm sitting there as a 35-year-old man. Like, what? what is my life? <laughs> like, what? what is happening right now? How could this be real? By the way, he, he looked great. The fantastic advertisement. If I was an 85-year-old man, I'd be like, this is the electric bra I want. But I, I, I couldn't quite get there. I was discharged with this thing. Horrible to have to wear. I have a newfound appreciation for women, other people that wear bras because it was it's very uncomfortable. But the feeling of taking off a bra at the end of the day, oh man, there's like nothing that beats that. So uh, two weeks later, I then was able to get an implantable defibrillator. And so I, I wore this thing. I mean, it was more than two weeks, maybe a, a little bit longer than that. But pretty soon, the plan was for me to get an SICD. And, and then there was a question, do I need like a traditional ICD versus a subcutaneous ICD? And I, I qualified for the subcutaneous, which is, I think is great. I think the plan is for me to keep the SICD, you know, for as long as it's still working. I always have the traditional one to go to if I have to down the road. What led you to choose an SICD over a transvenous ICD? Yeah, the um, the decision was 
was pretty easy. Uh, I would say, you know, I, I have a electrophysiologist. He talked to me about, you know, the pros and cons of, of both. And he recommended the SICD. I was all for it because I'd, I'd read a lot about the uh, leads migrating and causing all kinds of problems and causing scarring. And it just, it was like, man, I'm going to have to have something like this for the rest of my life for however long that is. And I, I'd want to try to be as least invasive as possible with this thing. And everything I read was the, again, it's, it's not like, it's not like the SICD was brand new. You know, it's, it's been around for a while. And so I was, I was on board. I was like, yeah, let's do the SICD. And, and that's what he wanted to do. What was the conversation like with your electrophysiologist? as you were about to undergo the surgical SICD placement. I need to talk to you about a part of this procedure. Uh, w- once we get the ICD in place, we need to put your, you into cardiac arrest to make sure it works. I've never been more scared in my life. I put on my best brave face because I was I just, I could not hear anything else at that. After that point, I was like, you're, I cannot believe that this is going to happen. It was absolutely terrifying, and I'm I'm glad he waited till the, kind of the last minute to tell me because if he had told me that like two like several weeks ago, I, I don't know, I would have lost my mind. I, I would it's just and so fortunately, I only had to lose my mind for like half an hour, and I was like on the verge of tears, like going into the operating room. And I was like, give me the Versed, get like get just I put me out of of this misery of 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 having to anticipate this procedure because I cannot take this anymore. My electrophysiologist, he's a very empathetic, compassionate person and uh, did a great job of explaining it to me and what was and why they were doing it and and it all turned out okay. Um what did he just say? He said, "I need to put your heart into cardiac arrest." to see if this ICD works. Yeah, that's what I thought he said. Are you kidding me? Wait a minute. So let's rewind. Will goes into cardiac arrest. His Mm -hmm. wife saves his life. Yep. Medics do some cool life-saving measures, intubate him, shock him six times, get a heartbeat back, all in full PPE, take a little drive to the hospital. Uh Uh-huh. He ends up in the ICU for medical management and a little therapeutic cooling, or as yes. Will says, hey, put that cooler around my head. Uh-huh, uh-huh, still following. Survives this ordeal, neurologically intact, although we believe his wife would disagree. Gets discharged <laughs> with an electrical man's ear bra device. Follows up like three weeks later, and now as EP doc says before going in to receive his ICD, yes. we need to put your heart into cardiac arrest. That yep. about sum it up? Yep, uh, you are all cut up. Uh, run, Will. Run like the wind, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain how the device is implanted? The device goes kind of in my, close to my armpit on my side. You know, they make an incision, put the device there, and then they thread the leads kind of underneath my nipple to my sternum, and then up my sternum. I can feel the lead in there. You can feel it. And then it goes all the way up to kind of my xiphoid. That's that's where the um, the the lead ends. And so the recovery was easy. It was pretty easy. It was it wasn't that painful. I've just got this nice device like sitting right there. It's kind of had to get used to having something in that spot. It's kind of weird. I, I recovered well, and as far as I know, it still works. It hasn't gone off yet, so that's great. Knock on wood. Do you have a little recording device at your bedside? 
I do. I have a a, a little um, buddy that's that that sits next to me on my nightstand, and I gotta send data back to the office every couple weeks or uh, once a week, I think. And then every so often, about every three months, I'll be coming in for a device check. So I'm actually doing that next week. So they're gonna. I think they're gonna put me on a treadmill and do some stuff. So, will following this event, did anything change in how you practice medicine? I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot of the, about the medical system, and you know, I've been a patient in the medical system before my cancer diagnoses, but this has been a totally different experience. Uh, because it's 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 been uh, it was a more devastating event that happened with less planning involved in terms of surgery and treatment. It just all happened at once. Being a patient in the Mer- American healthcare system, suffering an emergency has been um, really a, an eye-opening experience. Uh, it's not so much the the care I received excellent care. I, I had fantastic doctors. But it was really the the kind of the billing part of things, the, and uh, the what came after dealing with insurance, and that was a months long process that actually just wrapped up like a, a few months ago. So it was like a nine nine months or something uh, crazy. I was uh, kind of dealing with this, and it's something that all our patients deal with. So it's it's given me a new perspective on what patients go through, what our patients go through, and it's something that I I talk about frequently is you know things like surprise billing and. Being able to talk with our patients about financial hardship and what they're going through with medical bills and, you know, can they afford this and what are alternatives and just being open to talking about that is something that lots of physicians are not are not used to doing. Uh, an area that I think doctors could do a lot, a lot better with. And so I, I, that's, that's changed for me. You know, I, I talk about that a lot more with my patients and I'm just a little bit more in tune. It's easier for me as an ophthalmologist because everything we do for the most part is is elective. It's planned. It's, you know, we, I don't do a lot of emergency stuff. Thank God, because I mean, uh, you don't really want me in any kind of, you know, non-eye related emergency, but um, other specialists, other people in other fields have to deal with this a lot more. It's changed my practice a little bit in that way. Did anything change for you on a personal level? You know, in my day-to-day life, physically, I feel great back to normal, although I a little bit more hesitant to do real strenuous activity. In fact, I'm technically not supposed to do real strenuous activity, kind of mild to moderate. Don't really know what that means. I still go on a run, you know, for like three or four miles every so often, but I've come to grips with the fact that my athletic career is, although it was already coming to its end, it's pretty much over now. And so I'm no longer going to be, you know, doing it real strenuous kind of endurance type of activities. It's just not something that I can safely do anymore. But my family life, again, I talked about, we're just, we're kind of dealing with it as things come. And I think over time, we're going to come back to a new normal. We'll all be okay. What advice do you have for others that are recovering from this? Advice that I have in terms of recovery, one thing that that I would recommend doing is talking to the people that saved you. So uh, we had a meeting with the first responders a few weeks after the event, which was very cathartic. It was a, a great experience for us, but also for the first responders because paramedics, firefighters, people that respond to all these things all year long, more often than not, the outcome is not good. To meet with them and let them know this is why you do what you do. 
this is what can happen because of what you do. It just, it fills their bucket. It helps them to be able to keep going and keep doing this incredibly important work that they do. And uh, they just don't get that closure more often than not. They appreciated it. And of course, I appreciated it. My wife appreciated it because uh, we got to thank the, those people. We got to express our gratitude for saving my life. And the, uh, the impact that it has on not just me, but my family and my patients and just and all the people that love these silly videos that I put out there on social media now. And then in terms of the um, uh, recovery for the device, I would do take this device again for sure. I mean, it was it's it doesn't bother me at all. It it provides a feeling of safety. It, at least something's there, and it's going to help me if if I need it. the The biggest issue is just whether or not you qualify for it, because I know they're I'm not sure what they are, but there's some criteria that you have to meet in order to be able to get the SICD. Well, thanks for speaking with us and telling your incredible story. Any final words? One thing is just, you know, I know I mentioned everyone should learn CPR, but there's, it's so easy to say that. It's so obvious. It's crazy to me that I was in the medical field for like a decade before this happened. And I never once thought, hey, maybe I should get my wife CPR certified. It's insane to me now. Like, how did I not, how did that never cross my mind that that might be a good thing to do? And I know that there are other people in the medical field just like me that have never thought to do that. This is something CPR should be taught in schools. It should be like, there's no excuse. It's something that's, that's anybody can learn. Literally no downside to it. One of the big takeaways from this is, the, is just the importance of BLS and CPR. Find ways to cope find ways to get through this, uh, both physically, uh, but more importantly, emotionally and mentally. For me, it's humor and my family. But that's just how I kind of process things is through comedy. But everybody has a different way, you know, whether it's writing or whether it's just talking to people. And you need the physical part of it is one thing. The mental and emotional part of it is, is a whole different thing. That is just as important for people to to recognize and again it's not just the patient it's it's the family it's the people that are involved in these devastating events they need help too so i encourage people just to keep that in mind don't forget it's always more than one person that's affected by this these stories albeit heart-wrenching do occasionally have happy endings I return to the phrase that teamwork makes the dream work. Had it not been for Will's superhero wife recognizing the cardiac arrest, to the paramedics doing the impossible, all the way to the critical care delivered, and then finally having an SICD placed, truly remarkable what can happen when we work together. For those of you who know someone who works in EMS, fire, police, and healthcare, the next time you see them, give them a big high five. It's nice for them to hear every once in a while how much they're appreciated. As Will so eloquently states, it fills their bucket to know that they saved a life. Without the whole system working so amazingly, we would have lost someone special. Just wow, this was fantastic. Special thanks to Dr. Flannery for sitting down with us to discuss such a personal story. The Patient concludes the final chapter of Boston Scientific's Do I Really Need a Wire in My Heart? Thanks for tuning in. 
need? Do I need? Do I need? Do I need? A wire? A wire? In my heart. In my heart. In my heart. Do I really need a wire in my heart? A Boston Scientific Podcast.